Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, listeners, did you know that the team behind Real Outlaws has other podcasts, too? Discover them all at Noiser.com, home of the Noiser Network. You'll find hundreds of immersive true stories. There's a world of podcasts waiting for you. So don't miss it. Listen on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Against the backdrop of the Great Depression, John Dillinger rose as one of America's most salacious and flamboyant gangsters of the 1930s, becoming a household name. Dillinger and his gang's epic tale of prison breaks, bank jobs, and brotherhood became first-class entertainment for the American public. With the economic demise of many hard-working Americans, John Dillinger was revered and idolized by many. Still, it's easy to see Dillinger for what he was, a hardened criminal. But what's the true story behind John Dillinger? Was he a misguided man destined for organized crime? Or was he created by the very society he rebelled against? This is John Dillinger, Part 1, Hard Time. It's September 6th, 1924, a balmy summer's night in Mooresville, Indiana. Mooresville has been described as just a wide place in the road. A small, typical American town. Everyone knows everyone else's business, and sitting on one's front porch is the height of nighttime entertainment around these parts. A starry night sky frames the front of the red brick-and-mortar West Side grocery store, with the quaint Christian church standing beside it. A slight breeze flows over Frank Morgan, a grizzled older gentleman and proprietor of West Side Grocery, as he locks up for the night, carrying with him the weekly receipts. Hearing what sounds like whispering voices behind him, he turns to look. But in the dim orange glow of the distant street lamp, all he sees is tall, waving grass dancing in the breeze and the dark dirt road that leads even deeper into nothingness. Shrugging off his intuition, Frank locks the deadbolt to the store the way he does every night, when the unthinkable happens. He barely has time to notice the shadow crossing him before he's struck twice on the back of the head with an iron bolt wrapped in cloth. Frank collapses to the floor and writhes in pain, but somehow he finds the strength to stand. Dazed, he is confronted with a revolver pointing right in his face. Put your hands up! A nervous yet determined young man exclaims. 
Morgan smells the sharp aroma of bourbon and tobacco on his assailant's breath. He looks up to reveal two young men, around the age of 20. The two youths are Johnny Dillinger and Ed Singleton. Despite not being masked, Morgan doesn't recognize the men. He does, however, recognize the anxiety in their wide, adrenaline-filled eyes. Morgan is disoriented, but he's also not gonna take this from a couple of kids. Summoning his grit, Morgan quickly knocks the revolver out of Dillinger's hand. A bullet discharges, striking the pavement. But the returning ricochet hits Morgan. Spooked, Singleton and Dillinger flee down Broad Alley, making their escape into the night. Soon, neighbors from the church and nearby homes run to Morgan's rescue and carry him home to be tended to by a physician. It takes 11 stitches to sew up wounds from the discharged bullet that struck Frank Morgan in the leg. Little could anyone know, this bungled robbery and that one wild shot would prove to be the starting gun in the race to criminal infamy for America's most notorious bank robber, John H. Dillinger. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. The botched assault on Frank Morgan would mark the unpromising start to the career of one of America's most notorious outlaws. How was a wayward youth driven to a life of violent crime? Did he choose it, or did it choose him? And how would he end up becoming the infamous villain that would make headlines across the nation? To really understand the story of the celebrity criminal, we must first come to know John Dillinger, the man, and discover where it all began. John Herbert Dillinger was born on June 22, 1903, in Indianapolis, Indiana. The second child of John W. Dillinger, Sr. and Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster, who, sadly, became an invalid due to her son Johnny's complicated birth. Molly didn't die as a direct result of Johnny's birth, but three years later, she entered the hospital and never came out. Dillinger Sr. is quoted to have said, It wrung my heart in those days to see Johnny's bewilderment at his mother's continued absence. He toddled around hunting Molly and crying for her. Molly subsequently passed away in 1906. Audrey Dillinger, Johnny's older sister, only 17 at the time, then marries a local man and both move into the Dillinger residence. 
Audrey becomes Johnny's surrogate mother, raising him alongside her own children. In 1920, now remarried, Dillinger Sr. moves the family from Indianapolis to Mooresville, Indiana, his wife Lizzie's hometown. Dillinger Sr. is getting older, having survived wartime shortages, post-war inflation, and wished to get back to his farming roots and return to the land. So, he sells his modest grocery store and buys a small farm. It isn't a move that the 17-year-old Johnny would take to. He's already a confident young man, though what his future holds, nobody could guess. Elliot J. Gorn is a historian and author of Dillinger's Wild Ride, the year that made America's public enemy number one. If you met John Dillinger on the street, you probably wouldn't be particularly taken with him. He was about average height, and he was a decent-looking man, a good-looking man in some ways, and he could be very charismatic. So, but nothing, nothing so distinguished. He was not large. He was not particularly small, prepossessing in any way. Kind of an average man, but there was nothing, again, extraordinary about him just to see. In Mooresville, Indiana, the Dillinger family joins the Quaker congregation and fits in nicely into the community. However, farm life doesn't appeal to Johnny, especially since he suffers from hay fever. But it's a bit more than that. There is a restlessness within young Johnny Dillinger. Between 1920 and 1923, Johnny seems to travel between Mooresville and the larger nearby cities of Martinsville and Indianapolis. He rides the railway or tears about on his motorcycle, preferring the hustle and bustle of urban life. He was certainly jocular, he could tell a joke, he was friendly, he was outgoing, smiled a lot, laughed a lot, liked to have a good time. I think you'd have to know a little more about him or spend time with him to get a little deeper. One thing that's striking about him, in some ways he was something of a fabulist. When you read, he wrote, he had a number of girlfriends and when you get a sense of his relationships and the letters he wrote, he falls deeply in love very, very easily. I think another thing from his past that we know from as a young man, he was easily bored. And he just imagined, it seems, it seems that he imagined a life that would be much more than where he came from, first growing up in a working-class neighborhood in Indianapolis, then his father moving to the farm in Mooresville, outside of town. I think that was, for John Dillinger, a life he would not have liked. He just could not stand it. He changed jobs frequently when he was a young man, was good at what he did, was said to be a reliable worker, but he could not stick with anything. He had, I don't know if to say he had dreams make, makes it too positive a spin on his character, but he was not someone who seemed content with the life that it looked like he was going to have as a young man. In 1923, at the age of 20, Johnny becomes infatuated with a farm girl from Rockville. Starcrossed, the woman's father opposes their union and forbids them to marry because of his daughter's young age. Brokenhearted, Johnny becomes increasingly despondent until, one Sunday in July, he steals a car out of a parking lot of a friend's house and drives to Indianapolis. The police hunt young Dillinger down, only for him to elude them before arrest. 
it's a sign of things to come and a theme that will characterize Johnny's later life. In a panic and perhaps hoping for some adventure, Dillinger impulsively enlists in the U.S. Navy. Thinking about what did a man feel like who grew up in working class Indianapolis and just hated the boredom that it looked like life had in store for him. He saw what many of his cousins, how their lives had gone in Indiana, and they were workaday lives. Nothing, nothing shameful by any means, but for someone like Dillinger, boring. In early October 1920, Johnny Dillinger was transferred to the USS Utah as a fireman third class. It seems this is where young Dillinger's problems with authority begin. Johnny fails to return from shore leave and is declared AWOL. He shows up 24 hours later. As punishment, he's given 10 days solitary confinement and fined $15. Then, in December of that year, Johnny takes off for good and the Navy declares him a deserter and offers a $50 reward for his whereabouts. Now officially on the lam, Dillinger returns to Mooresville, Indiana, where he meets and marries Beryl Ethel Hovius on April 12, 1924. He tells his family and friends that the Navy sent him home due to a heart murmur. As Dillinger enters his mid-twenties, he attempts to walk the straight and steady path, marry, work steadily, and appreciate the simple joys of life. But the restlessness within him comes out once again. Dillinger looks to the men in his life, his father and his cousins, and watches them live their steady, boring lives. And he can't help but want more. He can't help but want something, anything, other than this quiet life of desperation. This is when he begins planning a small-time robbery with an ex-convict friend, Ed Singleton. John Dillinger, before he was accused of any serious crime, committed an assault on an old man in uh, Mooresville, Indiana, and with a, an, an ex-convict, before Dillinger had been in any trouble, with an ex-convict named Ed Singleton, they assaulted an old man named Frank Morgan, who just happened to be a grocer taking home the week's receipts. They were quickly arrested. Following the attack, Johnny Dillinger goes home to his new wife, Beryl, and slides into bed with her. But he can't sleep. The echoing misfortune of the night's events still haunt him. He's consumed with guilt, or possibly just fear of the consequences of his rash actions. Not able to let sleeping dogs lie, Johnny Dillinger ventures into town the next day and asks if old man Frank Morgan is all right before anyone even knows a crime has been committed. It is this small slip-up that seals Dillinger's fate. On Monday morning, the local police marshal comes and hauls Johnny Dillinger off to Martinsville jail. The second slip-up that would condemn Johnny's future follows shortly after, and actually comes from his doting father, John Sr. They were clearly inept at this robbery. <laughs> Old John Dillinger, John's father, told him, throw yourself on the mercy of the court, plead for innocence, and 
that will go easier for you. Well, Singleton, again, an ex-convict, was not going to do that. And he blamed the whole thing on John Dillinger. Dillinger got a sentence of many years. Ed Singleton got off very, very easy. Those fateful words would forever haunt John Dillinger Sr. as Judge Joseph Williams, known as one of the harshest magistrates in the area, decides to make an example out of young Johnny, citing the need to curb a rising tide in youth violence. Dillinger Sr. pleads with the judge for leniency, arguing that a year behind bars would straighten his son out, but to no avail. Johnny is sentenced, 10 to 20 years at the Indiana State Reformatory at Pendleton for assault and battery, and two to 14 years on a charge of conspiracy to commit a felony. In contrast, the savvy Ed Singleton, Johnny's accomplice, pleads innocent, retains an attorney, and is granted a change of venue and judge. Singleton gets just two years. On September 16, 1924, before being admitted to prison, the 21-year-old Dillinger utters his last words as a free man, a bitter, fateful promise of revenge. He says, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. This was a classic case where the court had one person cooperating, the other person not cooperating. The guy who didn't cooperate, trying to be loyal to his accomplice, really got shafted for it. It's certainly it's unfair compared to Singleton. You know, I, I guess that's a question about sentencing in, in the criminal justice system. A nine-year sentence for a first offense is awfully long. And we know that today. We know that with the sentencing of young people, people change. A more lenient sentence might have changed everything. In a moment, John Dillinger's life takes a new path. These will be hard years and will make him the man he is to become. It was in prison, it was in the penitentiary, where Dillinger made all of the contacts, met all of the people, learned all of the techniques, which would make him into a, a, a major criminal. So in that sense, it certainly wasn't a good idea. Dillinger will incur many infractions during his time in prison, which awards him days and weeks in the guardhouse and months added to his sentence. He contemplates escape, hiding out from guards and slipping free from his cell, only to be quickly found and punished. Dillinger is variously charged with gambling, fighting, wearing non-regulation clothing, and destroying prison property. Guards repeatedly fine him, put him in solitary confinement, and send him to the guardhouse for violations. With his desperation growing, Dillinger becomes ever more determined. It's October 1924 at the Indiana State Reformatory. John Dillinger is inmate 14395. 21 years old, he stands five foot seven inches with gray eyes. His face is still boyish with a small cleft chin. Pushing his lank, dark hair back off of his face, Dillinger sits back on the bed in his cell. He's reading Argosy All Story, 
a weekly pulp fiction of cowboys, romance, and adventures. His cellmate rolls over on his cot. You ready? He asks. Putting down the magazine, Dillinger nods. They each pull out a small, serrated saw blade hidden in their pillowcases and tuck them into their socks and cover it with pant legs. Dillinger and his cellmate make the long walk with the other inmates to the mess hall. They eat breakfast as usual. They work in the shirt-making factory as usual. They do push-ups in the yard as usual. And that's when they make their move. Linking up with another man, Dillinger motions to his two accomplices to hide out behind some bushes when all the other inmates go back to their cells. Once the lights are out and the guards aren't looking, all three men take the saw blades from their socks. They find a gate in the corner of the yard that's not well lit. All three take turns sawing a bar of the gate as hard as they can. The men work and work and work, when finally, snap. The bar to the gate snaps off and Dillinger is able to fit his hand around the doorknob and unlock the gate. It creaks as it opens. Run, Dillinger whispers harshly. And as the gate swings open, the three men sprint for their lives. They make it out of the first compound and to the outer walls, but they are confronted by the imposing perimeter security gate beyond. What now? But there's no time to answer. The guards in the towers have seen them. Floodlights flash on and rush straight to them. Dogs and guards swarm after the three men as they scatter, but there's nowhere to go. Within minutes, the three escapees are wrestled to the ground. As an officer presses Dillinger's sweaty face into the dirt, he vows, I'm gonna get out of here. I swear to God I will. And you're gonna know my name. The attempted breakout buys Johnny the respect of other inmates, but it also buys him more time to get to know them. Several more months are added to his sentence. During this time, Dillinger befriends other like-minded and embittered criminals, such as Harry Pete Pierpont, Homer Van Meter, Charles Makeley, and Russell Clark. Harry Pierpont, from Leipzig, Ohio, is a six-foot-tall, pale, blue-eyed, charismatic man who is seen as a natural leader. Indiana indicted him for a bank job in Kokomo, assault and battery with intent to commit murder. Homer Van Meter was sentenced to 10 to 20 years after robbing passengers on a New York Central train passing through Gary, Indiana. Van Meter is a deeply menacing presence behind his jokester facade, but also intellectual and articulate. Charles Makeley is 44, the oldest of the crew, and Russell Clark, 35, both also serving time for failed bank robberies. 
the men form a tight circle and teach Dillinger how to get on in prison, and more importantly, how to get on as a criminal outside of prison. The friends start planning heists that they hope to commit in the future. These are the first conversations of what will become the notorious Dillinger gang. I think it's fair to say that the criminal justice system made John Dillinger. That had he not gotten that long sentence in the Indiana State Penitentiary, locked up for nine years with really hardened criminals, guys who had violent, serious offenses, I think that's where John Dillinger learned his trade, and that's when the Dillinger gang formed. With plenty of time on his hands, Dillinger becomes a dedicated student of criminal theory. It's unknown whether he finds books held in the prison library itself or has them smuggled in, but he starts to learn the trade. It's thought that Dillinger studies Herman Lamb's detailed bank robbing system, which he will use throughout his criminal career. To properly use the system, one must carefully study the target bank for many hours before performing the robbery, develop a detailed floor plan, noting the locations of safes, and take meticulous notes and establish escape routes. Ideally, you should have a man pose as a journalist or a customer to better understand the layout of the bank. Assign each gang member a specific job, such as lookout, getaway driver, the lobby man, and the vault man. Rehearsals should be set to prepare the men for the real thing. Timing is crucial, so stopwatches are used to hone performance. Some of these rehearsals even involve full mock-ups of the interior of the targeted bank. We don't have a lot of specifics about what like life was like in prison for John Dillinger or any of the friends he made. And we really don't know what the content of conversations was of between John Dillinger and Red Hamilton or Harry Pierpont or some of the others that became important in the gang. We know that they spent years together <laughs> with plenty of time to talk about what banks might be interesting. Well, robbing a bank took a certain amount of thought. You wanted to find a bank, for example, that if possible was near a state border, a way to confuse jurisdiction. Drive across a state border and the uh, state police are not going to follow you into the new state. And that took a certain amount of knowledge, sense of when deposits might be coming in, which banks would be less guarded than others. But the thing is that these guys had lots of time on their hands. They were from around the state and they could, they could talk about such things. They had lots of time to plan and think. Meanwhile, during the long years of separation, Johnny's dad, Dillinger Sr., is increasingly plagued by guilt. He blames himself for convincing his son to plead guilty without the presence of a defense attorney. In February 1933, Dillinger Sr. starts a campaign to free his son. The whole Dillinger family work the town and circulate a petition, getting nearly 200 signatures in favor of granting Johnny Dillinger an early parole. Even Frank Morgan, the man Johnny Dillinger assaulted nearly 10 years earlier, signs the petition. 
I don't know that John Dillinger Jr. blamed his father, but John Dillinger Sr. did feel guilt about that. He felt like he had just given his son bad advice, and he actually worked hard to do what he could to get uh, petitions signed and, and really get some Indiana state politicians on board to get him released. And he was released, John Dillinger Jr., after nine years in the penitentiary, nine long years for this assault and attempted robbery. In the spring of 1933, after eight and a half years of prison, John Dillinger Jr. is finally released on parole. He should be overjoyed, but Dillinger is nearly 30. His youth has been taken from him, and the world he re-enters is not a kind one. Upon being released, Dillinger tells his sister, Audrey, When you're in a place like that, with not a kind word from anyone, how could you help from being sore toward everybody? It was the Great Depression, 1933, the spring of 1933, and the state had incentive to lose prisoners because they were costly to keep them there. I'm not saying he was parole for that reason. He had been a good enough prisoner for a long enough time that this time his parole went through and the, the governor of the state signed it. So he got out uh, completely legitimately. And yet within a couple of months, well, within less than a couple of months, he started robbing banks, managed to form a gang. How he met this first um, group of accomplices is unclear. It's the summer of 1933. Johnny Dillinger's re-emergence into the world is right during the height of the Great Depression. Banks have lost people's life savings. Making money the honest way seems more and more hopeless every day. Now a free man, Johnny accompanies his father to church, makes his peace with the Lord, and also seeks out Frank Morgan and apologizes for assaulting the old man nearly 10 years earlier. But as this new reality settles on Johnny Dillinger, he struggles to see a future for himself. It's easy to imagine his growing resentment, the view of an unforgiving world that never really gave him a fair shot, that robbed him of his youth. His only loyalty lies with his friends, still behind bars. And to his mind, there's only one career choice open to him. He takes the final step towards a life of crime. Dillinger enlists the help of two friends. In the dead of night, on June 10th, 1933, the threesome approach New Carlisle National Bank in Ohio. They hide in the bushes surrounding the building until morning. The moment two employees approach the bank, the three men burst from the bushes and bind the two men and hold them at gunpoint. Dillinger leaps over the counter, which will later be known as his trademark move and loads $10,000 into a bank bag before locking the employees into the vault. Before authorities even get to the scene, the three men are speeding along the highway, throwing roofing nails behind them to stop pursuers. Johnny Dillinger will make good on his promise to Homer Van Meter, 
Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, and Russell Lee Clark and bust them out of prison, that hellhole they all suffered in for years. The men are bound by oaths and by their shared experiences. They wore the same black and whites and the same chains. They're the only ones who truly understand him. I think that's one of the things that makes the story compelling to people. It's kind of like, it's a brotherhood in, in certain ways. You know, they're all working class people who have not had great lives. And suddenly there's excitement and clamor and money. Harry Pierpont, Homer Van Meter, Charles Makeley, and Russell Clark were part of a larger group of friends Dillinger met in prison. These men are the foundation for the Dillinger gang. The plan to escape has been a long time in the making. It started before Dillinger was even paroled. They find ways to send messages to each other in and out of prison through visitors and guards and across prison walls. Harry Pierpont is considered the mastermind. It's a cool, misty afternoon on September 26, 1933. Harry Pierpont leads his fellow prisoners and they gather in their workplace. It's a usual day in the shirt-making shop, or so it seems. Pierpont crosses to a stack of shipping crates filled with spools from the East Coast Thread Company. Pierpont looks for a crate marked with a black X, which a smuggled note from Dillinger told him to look out for days before. The note simply read, Look for the box with the X, then drive to Mary's house. Pierpont locates the box, opens it, and finds handheld firearms hidden in spools of thread. He surreptitiously dispenses the guns to the other inmates. Pierpont looks to Van Meter and then to Makeley. It's time. Pierpont quietly and calmly crosses the floor to the superintendent. Charles Makeley simultaneously approaches the assistant warden. Both men point the guns into their prospective victims' backs. Pierpont whispers into the superintendent's ear, March us true to the checkpoints and to the administration building. The cold steel barrel pressed into the officer's side serves as the or else. With the superintendent and the assistant warden at the front of a line of 10 convicts falling in step behind, nothing seems amiss. They march through the grounds and pass the checkpoints as if it were any other day, just prisoners delivering the shirts they've made. None the wiser, guards open the gates for them to pass through. It's all going to plan. Finally, the line of prisoners gets to the administration building, just steps away from the outside world, just steps away from freedom, when a guard challenges them. Before anyone can think, the sound of gunshots rip through the air. Pierpont shoots down their challenger. 
The other convicts beat two more officers and usher the remaining guards into a vault and lock the door. Pierpont leads the way as he unlocks the prison entrance. He kidnaps the surprised sheriff. Get your keys out and drive, Pierpont demands as he marches the officer to his parked car. The gang piles in, directing the car onto the highway before Pierpont dumps the quaking sheriff out the driver's side door and takes the wheel. Pierpont looks into the rearview mirror to Van Meter, Makeley, and Clark and says, good old Johnny. The Dillinger gang is free. The jailbreak is major news across America and not only catches headlines, but also fires the imagination of the American public. In a time when loyalty seems hard to come by, the idea of John Dillinger risking his neck for his friends seems refreshing during the height of the Great Depression, when many feel their own country has turned its back on them. It's a perception that will continue to grow as the Dillinger gang goes on the rampage, blazing a trail across the American Midwest. Next time on Real Outlaws, we'll sweep the nation with Johnny Dillinger and his infamous gang on a freewheeling crime spree as they target the richest banks in the country, enacting the revenge of the everyday American. The Dillinger gang become front page news, a pop culture favorite, and the FBI's most elusive adversary. Can Johnny take on the feds and the US government? Or will the law finally catch up with them? Find out next time on Real Outlaws. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.